All right. Well, seeing as how we are in 21 days of prayer and fasting, we're going to continue there. I think uh, sometimes you need encouragement when you're doing something difficult. Sure. You need somebody to tell you, it's okay, it's working. It's okay, you'll, you'll live and not die. Uh, my pastor, Darren, when I served him, he was raising his four kids. They're all married now. But when they would whine, he'd just look at him and say, it's all right, you'll live and not die. And that was kind of his family mantra in uh, telling them, basically, suck it up. That was his biblical pastoral way of telling his kids, suck it up. And so uh, sometimes when you're doing something difficult like fasting, you need encouragement to stick it through to the end. But also we need to learn this as a discipline as a Christian. Christians fast. It's part of a Christian lifestyle. We looked at last week, Jesus said, when you fast, not if you do. And then we see it demonstrated in the book of Acts when they were going to send out a missionary team, Paul and Barnabas. And they were making sure they were the right ones, so they prayed and fasted some more. Sometimes we look at that and we think that all took place in one service, but you can't fast in one service. That's just called being normal. When you go from breakfast to lunch and you have church in between there and you don't eat anything, that's not fasting. That's, that's being normal. So we have to realize there was a great period of time that went in between Acts 13, 1, 2, 3, and 4 when they fasted twice. There was a period of time where they sought God without food. And God spoke to them and said, set these guys apart. And they sought God again for another length of time without food. And then God put them in the ministry. So we need to be up to speed on this. It needs to be part of our regular lifestyle, just like prayer, just like tithing, just like soul winning. Fasting has to be a part of our Christian life because it will certainly help us in our seasons. Now, the wonderful thing is you don't have to fast something all the time, but you should be fasting something regularly and almost we can use it as a self-regulator. Like my pastor, Dr. Barclay says, fast your attractions. Fast what's creeping up on you. Be willing to look at your flesh and say, that's it. You've craved that for the last time this month. No more chocolate for today. <laughs> or whatever you need to do. Maybe it's video games. Maybe it's television. Maybe it's sports. You have to know what pulls on you. Everybody's different. So our flesh gravitates to something unique. And just because it's gravitating doesn't make it a sin, but it can quickly become a sin if you're not careful. Whatever you end up worshiping and serving, the Lord will probably, he might strike that thing and you don't get to have it the rest of your life. And I think the Lord's, maybe for most of us, he's taken away something that was neutral forever because we obsessed over it. We let it dominate our life too much and it became sinful. That's why Hebrews warns us or cautions us to lay aside weights and sins. We might say, lay aside the weights before they become sins. Amen. And so you, you seem very excited about this message so far, seeing as how you're American seven days into some kind of fast. It's not a cult. We didn't make you. You, you picked it. We, we, I've got pastor friends in this town. You'd call them a cult because they said, we're fasting food. Everybody's doing a juice fast and they're not giving anybody options. We didn't do that. We said, you, you sort this thing out with God. So your misery's on your hands, not mine. So don't, don't be so sad here. This is working out for your good. What I want to do this morning is look at several fasts in the Old Testament. And if we have time, maybe hit one or two in the New Testament to see what it accomplished, because we'll be able to principalize what they did and how it applied to them and how it brought victory for them to our life. And maybe it'll encourage you to maybe in the next week, dial your fast a little harder. Because maybe by after seven days, you're like, this is okay. I'm used to this. It's like putting weights when you bench press. You don't just stay at the bar your whole life. Right, Gertie? That's kind of a 
Is that in the hallway? He heard me anyway. It's still funny. You put weights on there to get stronger. Maybe in this next week you fast something or go intense. Maybe you add something to your fasting. The whole point in fasting is to seek God and to let him hear our cry and move him, as it were. And so I want to encourage you. So let's go to Judges chapter 20. Here's the first fast I can find in the entire Bible. It's interesting. You have to get all the way through the Pentateuch into the books of history, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. You have to get into this uh, period of time in between the Pentateuch and the monarchy stages or the kingdoms where you have this season of the judges. This is the first place we find a fast so proclaimed and so used to move God for direction. So let's look at this. We'll principalize it. Um, Here we have the story of the 11 tribes of Israel, excluding Benjamin, going to war against Benjamin because the Benjamites, the tribe of Benjamin, evil entreated a Levite, the words escape me, concubine. So this is a story, and it's a horrific story. It's kind of included as an addendum to the book of Judges because the book of Judges covers all the judges. Then you find these last two stories about a cult started by Moses' grandson and, a, and this issue here with the Benjamite, excuse me, the Levitical concubine. And the reason these two stories are added to the book of Judges and they seem to occur in the beginning time period of the book of Judges, is to demonstrate how lawless Israel was in this time when people forgot the law and every man did that which was right in his own sight. So here the story is a Levite is traveling through a Benjamite territory with his concubine. He takes refuge in the night thinking, I'll be safe here because these are the Benjamites. They're my brethren. And what happens is very similar to Lot and his angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a knock on the door and they say, hey, there's a woman in here we want her, and they end up brutalizing her all night long till they kill her. So then what the, Israel, the Levite does in anger is he cuts her into 12 pieces, sends her pieces to the 11 tribes of Israel and says, what our brothers did to her is wrong. We're going to war. And if you're not with me, I'm going to war against you too. That's the horror of this story. Just want to be very transparent. What's the purpose of the story? Is to show you how ruthless humanity can be when every man does that which is right in his own sight. The fact that this would happen at all, much less among your own brethren, is wicked. It's not meant to look pretty at all. It's meant to show us how wicked even Israel was when they had no judge, no lawgiver, no ruler, no priest. They were just doing their own thing, which our current society is degenerating into this season right now. So they go to war. The 11 tribes go to war against Israel, excuse me, against Benjamin. It's an enter to civil war is really what it is. It's brother against brother. So we have here in Judges chapter 20, verse 18, and we want to start principalizing here, and maybe this will encourage you, though we're not fighting anybody for the death of a concubine, which is really like a second-class wife in their culture. Verse 18 says, and the children of Israel rose and went up to the house of God and asked counsel of God. So here they're doing something right. God, what do we do? They're seeking God. They want vengeance. They want justice for the dead Israelite woman. And so they're asking God what to do. And they said, which of us shall go up first to the battle against the children of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. So they seek God. God gives them an answer. Judah, go first. And the children of Israel rose up in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel put themselves in array to fight against them at Gibeah. And the children of Benjamin came forth out of Gibeah and destroyed down to the ground of the Israelites that day 20 and 2,000 men. So the Benjamites killed 22,000 Judites except God said, send the Judites first. So they obeyed God and it didn't work. 
principalize that in your own life. When have you obeyed God and it didn't work out like you'd hoped it would, but you can still say, I obey God. Maybe these 22,000 Judites had their own personal sin and this was judgment. We never know. Maybe God said, send the Judites first because I want to cleanse this tribe because you're all filthy. It's something to consider. I don't have a better interpretation. I wish we could kind of like make it fluffy. It's a horrific story in the Old Testament. But they don't give up, and that's something else we can learn. Verse 22, and the people, the men of Israel, encourage themselves so they don't give up, and they don't blame God. That's something they have going for them. That's not like the American. God, why? God, why? They encourage themselves, and they set their face again in array in the place where they put themselves in the array, array the first day. And the children of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and asked counsel of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up again to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother? And the Lord said, Go up against him. So they seek God. They lose. They seek God. They don't blame him. Shall we go? Is this going to win? Uh, are we going to be able to beat our brother for the horrific thing they did? And God says, Go. God answers a second time. And the children of Israel came near against the children of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went forth against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed down to the ground of the children of Israel. Again, 18,000 men, all these drew the sword. So they lose another 18,000 men. Now we're up to 40,000 loss, and we sought God both times. Sort that out. I keep seeking God. It keeps not working. But I know I heard from God, but it's not working. Will you still trust God? Again, maybe these that went up, maybe they had some kind of secret sin that needed to be judged or purged. We don't know. We don't have the answer. We do see clearly from the text, they sought God. They obeyed God. It didn't work. But now let's get the bigger frame here. Every man is guilty of doing that which was right in his own sight. That's what has to be kept in mind here. Verse 26. Then all the children of Israel and all the people went up and came into the house of God and wept and sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now they increase their seeking of God, which is what fasting does for us. It's one thing to seek the Lord and get direction. It's another thing to seek the Lord with extra degrees of commitment. This is something fasting does for us. And here they even included offerings. Now, I, I am a little cautious to teach that because I don't want to sound like a television preacher who wants money. But there is an element throughout the scripture that when you need an answer from God, you bring an offering. Now, the good news for you in a local church is I don't get that offering. And it's between you and God anyway, so I would never know what it is. But there is that element of not just praying, praying, fasting, bringing a burnt offering, a sacrifice of some kind, and you bring it before the Lord. You're not buying an answer, but you are afflicting your soul, which is a common theme throughout the whole of the Old Testament. You fast to afflict your soul. When you make an oath, you afflict your soul. When you seek God, you're afflicting your soul. So this is something they added that they didn't have the first two rounds of seeking God. They didn't just seek God. Now they're fasting and they're bringing offerings, burnt offerings, which this gives us an indication of perhaps why the first two rounds of people died. The burnt offerings are offerings of rededication of their whole life. If you don't know the law, you might miss that detail. The burnt offering, there's three major offerings under the Levitical law. There's the sin offering, 
where you atone for your sin. There's the burnt offering where you rededicate your life to Christ. And that was symbolic of you putting your entire life on the altar and it's consumed of God and there's nothing left because he's all, you're all his and he's all yours. And then the peace offering is what you present to the Lord to confirm that he's received the sin offering and the burnt offering because the peace offering is like a communal meal. Will he sit down and receive it from you? If he sits down and receives it from you, according to the Old Testament, he'll receive it by a supernatural fire, and that's the confirmation that he has fellowship with you. So this kind of does begin to give us answers to what I alluded to. Maybe the 22,000 and the 18,000 that died needed to. There was sin that had not been atoned for. There was sin that had not been repented of. And these people seem to understand that because now when they've lost two times in a row, they don't shake their fist at God, which we probably would. They go to God. They seek him. They're weeping before him. They're in the house of God. They fast till the evening. They go all day without food. And then they bring the burnt offering, which says, we rededicate our lives. And then to confirm that that was received, they present the peace offering to say, Lord, we want to know that you receive us and have fellowship with us. All right. And the children of Israel inquired of the Lord for the ark of the covenant of God was in the, there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days. So we're talking about one generation removed from Aaron, or excuse me, to uh, Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. This lets us know this is at the beginning of the time of Judges, even though the story is at the end of the time of Judges, which is 380 years of time. And they said, Shall I yet go again out to battle against the children of Benjamin, my brother, or should I cease? That's a justifiable question. Lord, this is not working. Should we go or stop? We keep obeying you, but it doesn't seem to work. And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into thine hand. I would have probably waited till I heard that the first time. Go up. Are you, I would have asked, are you sure? But notice after they fast, after they give burnt offerings and rededication, and after they confirm their rededication with the peace offering, the Lord then promises them victory. He didn't promise them victory the first two times. Now, how do we take that? What do we, how do we apply that? Maybe let's be clear when we leave the presence of God. Let's make sure we understand what he's saying. As we raise our kids, we're realizing we're having to say, all right, repeat that back to me. My Lydia is a brilliant kid. She's learned just to say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. When I get onto her, yes, sir. Lydia, yes, sir. Stop. Yes, sir. What did I just say to you? I'm in trouble. Yes, you are. But stop saying yes, sir, so much. Why do you say yes, sir? Because I know I'm in trouble. Well, just stop and listen to what I need you to do. Let's not just be hasty here. Yes, sir. All right. She's learned to pacify my anger wonderfully because how do you get onto a kid who just sits there and says, yes, sir. But I want you to fix it too. Don't just sit there and pacify my anger. Obey. Maybe what we do with this story, we principalize it by saying when we need victory, we don't just ask for what to do. We make sure we're right with God. We rededicate our lives. To me, I look at the story and I see the, the, the Judites and the other tribes. They're just like, do I go up? And the Lord says, yeah, go up. How do we know it is an example like with King Saul? Or excuse me, King Ahab. Yeah, go up. I'll be a lying spirit in the mouths of all their prophets. Go up, for I have appointed them to death. 
How do we know it wasn't that kind of scenario? We can't see behind the curtain there. I'm trying to give us an explanation why they obeyed God and died. All I can tell you is that once they slowed down more, fasted, and then gave sacrificial giving and offerings, God no longer said, just go up. He said, go up and you'll succeed. Maybe we should wait in the presence of God till we have the confirmation of success. It's all right to stay in the presence of God longer. It's okay to pump the brakes. It's okay to yield more and slow down more. I would rather be behind God than ahead of him. I'd rather him say, son, you need to pick up the pace than him say, where are you? So I want us to see from this story of fasting, it gave them not just direction, it gave them victory. It gave them promised victory. And so what do they do? They go up, and you know what? They got the victory. And so will we if we'll wait on the presence of the Lord, not just in prayer, prayer and fastings, and maybe we sacrifice something. It doesn't always have to be money. Maybe it's a, a weekend. Maybe it's a hobby. You never know what sacrifice the Lord's going to require of us to prove to him we're reconsecrating our life. All right? Let's look at the second fast. We're going to look at a couple stories this morning running through the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Hopefully you got something out of that first set there. If nothing else, go back and read the, amendum, uh, the appendum to, uh, addendum to Judges and see how horrific things were in the Old Testament when nobody obeyed the law of God. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Here we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant being kept at Kerjath Jerim, where it was stored for 20 years. Saul, excuse me, um, uh, king, Saul is the king, but now what we have is uh, a time where the presence of God is not in Israel. And the people of God aren't very excited about that. And Samuel is the prophet. So they're without the glory of God, and they miss the presence of God. Look at, uh, look at verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the hill, excuse me, into the house of Abinadab in the hill, and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is a bad season when you don't have the presence of God for twenty years. Now, lamentation is great, but how about we do something in addition to that? It's one thing to be sad, but if we can go get the Ark of the Covenant, why not do it? This thing sits here for an even longer period of time before David finally does it in about his seventh year of his kingship. Why wait? Why be sad when you can do something to fix a situation? So this one's kind of a two-pronged principalization. Yes, they're sad, and we should be sad when we don't have the presence of God, but what are we willing to do to get it? Maybe like in our church, some of you older folks who remember the revivals that this ministry's seen, you want to know where are the miracles, where are the healings, where's the stuff we used to see in the 80s and 90s. And I would say, yeah, I miss those too. What are you going to do to get them? Are you willing to come and pray? It Maybe if you're wondering where the miraculous move of God was, maybe back in those days, it kind of reveals you weren't part of the prayer team that maintained it. You just kind of enjoyed everybody else's work. It's one thing to recognize we're not in revival. It's another thing to be hungry enough for it that you'll grab a hold of it in prayer and say, Lord, move by your spirit. Lord, move by your spirit. 
When I served briefly down in the Florida Keys, and I served under the Assemblies of God, there was a pastor down there who actually is still pastoring. He's no longer in Key West. He's now in Marathon. Where's Gary at? Is Gary Dalton here? Children's Church. He's actually been to the church and met the pastor, Pastor Ernie Deloach. Pastor Ernie Deloach, when he was fresh out of uh, one of the AG churches, he went and was a missionary to the Bahamas and ended up building a tremendous work in the Bahamas. And uh, Pastor Ernie, he had a team of women. This is in the early 1980s, not the 1780s or the 1880s. He had a team of women who would come in and pray every morning from about 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., seven days a week. He said they'd come in during the work week with rollers in their hair preparing for work, and they'd come and pray for two hours, and they'd pray for the revival of God and the power of God. And he said, consequently, because of their constant prayers, he could stand in the pulpit, pray for the sick, and see miracle after miracle after miracle. So I was hearing his stories eating salami and cheese slices on crackers in the basement of his church in Key West, Glad Tidings Tabernacle. And I said, like, what kind of miracles, Pastor Ernie? He said, we saw cancers explode. We saw cancers fall off women and roll down their garments and roll on the floor. He, saw, he said, anything with a cancer died in our pulpit. And across the street from their church there in the Bahamas, apparently Grand Bahama Island, he said, was an alternative cancer treatment facility that even, I think it was President Ford's sister. Is that the president whose sister had cancer? Anybody know? Any of my historians? Huh? Ford? All right. His sister had even sought cancer treatment at this alternative thing in the 70s or 80s. So that facility was across the street from their church there, Grand Bahama Island. He said, when they get in work over there, they'd come over to our church and get healed. And I said, Pastor Ernie, that's awesome. Wow. And I, he said, it was those women's fault. He said, I had nothing to do with it. They're the ones that came in every morning, seven days a week, prayed God to move. Move, oh Lord. Move, oh Lord. Heal people. Deliver people. And he said, consequently, we built this huge church that Jimmy Swaggart ended up dedicating in the early 80s. Massive church they dedicated there. So when I met Pastor Ernie, he was pastoring in Key West, Florida. This is the late 90s. And so I asked him, because the Brownsville revival was going on and it was petering out, kind of. I said, why don't we see that here, Pastor Ernie? He said, real simple, we're not hungry enough for it. And he's the one that taught me Honestly, son, we don't need it because we have Walmart. And that was a kick in my gut as a young, zealous 22, 23-year-old. He said, people here don't need it. They're not hungry enough for it. Those ladies prayed it in. They're the reason we saw miracles. He said there was this one lady who had, was crippled in her feet. And he said, I came one Sunday morning and looked, and uh, she had a shoebox. She wasn't able to wear shoes because her feet were crippled. And I said, sister, what's in the shoe box? And she said, well, Pastor Ernie, shoes. He said, what are they for? She said, me. And he said, why? She said, because I'm getting healed today and I'm going to take off running. He said, halfway through service, I heard her scream, take off running. She forgot the shoes. <laughs> God had healed her feet. We don't see that stuff here. Here, we're more like these folks. We're lamenting. Where's the power? Where's the revival? Yeah, great. Be sad. What will you do? Maybe even in your own situation. Be sad, but what will you do? Why sit you here and die? Why not get up and seek God? And so verse 3, Samuel the prophet spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts. We're seeing a common theme this morning. Returning to the Lord with all your hearts, not just your favorite Sunday morning free time. 
Then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you. Prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. Even then they called him out of home church and made him a symbol publicly. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. It's an offering. Now, this seems foolish to us. Like we could take my glass of water here and just pour it out. But it wouldn't mean much because this took no effort. But if you think about the times of antiquity, how much work goes into drawing water? A lot. How long do you have to wait in line at the well? There's no pitcher pump. It's lowering a pot, tipping it over. I was trying to do some geography and some geologic research to see there's too many mizpahs to do it accurately. I wanted to know what's the hydrologic table of this area. Because I'm almost guaranteeing that this is a slow-producing well. I'm almost guaranteeing that this is going to be an issue, that this is even a bigger deal, that they drew water out in mizpah. And everybody probably knew, really? And then what would you do with it? We poured it out before God. There's something about, not offerings, not burn animals here, water offerings. I have a massive geologic map of Israel. I just have to nail down which Mizpah this is, because that's going to make all the difference in the world. But I think we see here that this is a libation offering, just like David's men who snuck behind the enemy's camp, got water out of the well of Bethlehem, brought it to David, and David said, I can't drink this, it's the price of blood. So he poured it out as an offering. What we see here again is a sacrificial giving to God. They drew water out. They poured it out to God. And then it says, they fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now think about this story. They're sad the presence of God is gone. Samuel calls them to repentance. They eagerly repent. They get rid of all their Balaam and all their Ashtaroth, and they repent, and they come together. They obey everything the preacher tells them to do. They draw out water offerings. They pour it out as a gift for God. They fast, and God forgives their sins, and revival begins, and then the enemy attacks. Doesn't that sound like the devil? You get everything right in your life, and then all hell falls apart. Welcome to the kingdom. The good news is you have God on your side now. I want you to see in this second example of fasting, it didn't make things easier. It just made God on their side. Had they not obeyed the prophet, the Philistines would have left them alone. But the reason the Philistines are attacking them is because the glory of God is coming back on God's people. And when the glory of God comes back upon your life, the enemy always stirs up enemies of your family to come against you to try to snuff that thing out. You don't understand the enemy, Satan, he hates the glory of God on your life. So anytime you start to get momentum, anytime you start to get favor, anytime you start to get holy or cleaned up, you grow, glow brighter in the spirit. And the enemies of your life that know you see it and they begin to attack. They attack through your natural enemies. They attack through sickness and disease. They attack through offense. They attack through family. They attack through coworkers and crass this and temptations flare up. Anything to extinguish you. It shouldn't surprise us that when we start to draw close to God, that things get a little bit more difficult. Serving God isn't a free win. This thing is a battle. That's why God gives us the armor of God, not the loungewear of the spirit. 
You can build a mega church selling loungewear of the Spirit. You can build a strong church teaching on the armor of God. By the very fact he says you have a helmet and a shield and a breastplate and a sword means you're not going to get to take your ease. The kingdom is not won by jammy pants, slippers, and uh, you know your favorite ratty sweatshirt, your Walmart wardrobe. You know, The kingdom is won with the armor of God. And so verse 8 says, The children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for the us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And you know what? The Philistines were subdued that day all the way until the day of David. That war shut down the Philistines for a generation. That's what fasting will do. Here I say that the loss of God's presence elicited a fast for repentance. The enemy attacked and then was subdued. So here's a, a win for fasting. Third fast. This one might be a different application. 1 Samuel chapter 31. This might be a use for fasting in your own life. You can use fasting to overcome sorrow and grief. And it is interesting. Uh, it's almost a, a natural psychological response. When you grieve for the loss of someone, you may lose your appetite altogether anyway. This is a very common occurrence. But if you can harness that and aim it towards seeking God and not just be overly sorrowful, we've all seen it. You know, somebody needs to take grandma. She's not touching her food. Take her some food anyway. Tell her she has to eat. Grandma, you got to eat. I know Papa's gone, but you still got to eat. I just don't have an appetite. It's one thing to mourn and sorrow and have no appetite, but use that combined time of fasting to seek God. So we see that first demonstrated here in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 11. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard of, of, what, of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, that is, kill him, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. Remember, they put them on a spike and they wanted to show them off. They went and retrieved their bodies. And they came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh. And they fasted seven days. Isn't that interesting? They fasted for seven days to mourn the loss of their king. In whatever time of mourning you might face, it might be a worthy tool to consider using to fast and seek God. There is a time to mourn, Ecclesiastes tells us, but then there's a time to rejoice. And it is my conviction that fasting during a time of mourning can expedite the process. The worst thing you can do is ignore the grief. There is a time to mourn. God said so. It is not a lack of faith to mourn. That's one of the errors of the word of faith doctrine. That, oh, I don't cry. There's no faith in crying. Jesus wept. You want to tell him he has no faith? It's, it's fallacy to run from mourning when you should mourn. But there is a rejoicing that comes in the morning, and that's a proverbial morning. It doesn't mean 24 hours later or 12 hours later. It means when your day breaks and the darkness lifts off of that season. And everybody mourns differently for different things. Mourn the loss of a loved one. Mourn the death of a child. Mourn the end of a marriage or the divorce. You could mourn the loss of a business. You could mourn uh, some folks. You, you have everything set on some kind of college acceptance. You don't get in. That might cast you into mourning. Everybody's different. So we don't criticize anybody's trigger. But there is a commandment that at some point the mourning ceases and rejoicing begins. 
because you're still alive. God's still on the throne. The loved one's gone. They're either in heaven or hell. There's nothing you can do about it now. But you are here and you must march on. So there is a healing that can be elicited. There's a healing that can be provoked by seeking God. And I, it's my conviction that if you'll couple prayer and fasting together with your season of mourning, you can come out of it quicker. There are those times where people mourn too long. And as a pastor, you have to get into their life and say, stop it. All right. Grandma's been dead three years. Stop it. Look, you didn't make the championship. Stop it. It's going to be okay. Sometimes you have to have somebody come along and smack you or shake you or wake you. Fasting will help expedite this. Rolling right along into 2 Samuel, verse 1, same page probably in your Bible. Verse 12, the same thing happens for David when he finds out. Verse 11, when he finds out that Saul is dead, he says he took hold of his clothes and he rent them or tore them and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening. For Saul, for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. Here we see this is the only time David mourns and weeps for Jonathan and Saul. And I believe it brought about a catharsis. He, we know he loved Saul, even though he was hunted like a dog by Saul. We know he was very dear and very close to Jonathan. But we see an all-day outpouring of sorrow and bitterness and grief. And then he gets up and he's done. Sometimes as Americans, I, our culture, every culture is different. We teach different things in different cultures around the world. But sometimes you see folks refusing to weep. And I, I really don't like some of our circles and how they treat funerals. And I'm not a big fan. Now, hear me carefully. I'm not a big fan of making funerals worship services or praise services because it's not the purpose of the service. Now, there's a time to remember and there's a time to laugh and there's a time to rejoice in the funeral. But the funeral is in the Bible called the house of sorrow. It's called the house of mourning. And Ecclesiastes says it's better to go there than to the house of mirth. So somehow we went from making the funeral home what the Bible calls it into trying to transform it into something the Bible doesn't want it to be. I've done a lot of funerals, as you can imagine. And as a pastor, I do a lot of regular services. And I can tell you there's a totally different anointing in a funeral home on a funeral than there is in a Sunday morning service. And I have seen the Spirit of God grieved or frustrated in funerals that were meant by God to give those who were alive and remaining the opportunity to weep and mourn. They quenched the Spirit of God trying to make it a time of celebration. Now, I'm not against that if you want to do it later, but if we're going to be biblical, we need to give those that alive and remain the opportunity to consider their own mortality according to Psalms and Ecclesiastes, and give them an opportunity with the help of the presence of God to sob, to weep, to mourn, to grieve. And especially in our Pentecostal circles, our faith circles, we try to laugh it off and we try to make it a Holy Ghost service. And that to me is disgusting. What we've done in faith circles is eliminate the biblical concept of a house of mourning. Ecclesiastes says, go there rather than the house of mirth, because then you'll consider, you'll lay your heart to your own life. 
because that's where you're headed, it says. We're all headed to the house of mourning. So anyway, coming back, my point is sorrow is part of mourning, and fasting can help you expedite that. We would say get it out of your system. There is a catharsis, which comes from the Greek word katharsil, which means you, you are healed, you're cleansed by it. I remember when my papaw died in 2004, we went to the funeral in Louisiana, and I knew that funeral home, I'm going to sob, and I'm going to get it out of my system. And I, I embraced it. It's the first time I ever embraced sorrow. I hadn't really been to too many funerals up until then, but I could feel it. Even I wasn't a preacher then. I was in Bible school when he died, but to stand over the casket, and it just came over me, and I just... I wasn't really, really close with my papa, but I loved him and respected him and looked up to him. Spent most of my summers, a week or two in the, every summer growing up with him. But I just cried. I, I felt it come over me. And then it was done. Sometimes we try to put that thing off. Fasting can help it open up, let it come out, and then let God pour in the balm of Gilead and heal you. Remember Isaiah says he wants to heal the brokenhearted. He wants to appoint for all those that mourn in Zion, rejoicing, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Amen. All right. So David does the same thing. They weep. So maybe you can use fasting to heal your heart in a time of mourning. Look at our fourth fast. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. You're here. We're just walking through the Old Testament. Isn't it fun? You get to know your Bible. There's all these stories in here that can be used in our life. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Here, David is going to use fasting again to try to change the heart and mind of God concerning the judgment on his young son. This is the story of David committing adultery with Bathsheba and then the maniacal cover-up and then the conspiracy for the death of Uriah, the Hittite. And so the greater, greatest sin is not just the adultery, it's the cover-up. It's then manipulating one of your most trusted, loyal men and setting him up for murder. So that even though David didn't pull the arrow that hit Uriah, David moved him in the location so that God's enemies could kill a holy, honorable man. And on top of that, David marches along like nothing's wrong and we take that from the fact that when the boy is cursed, the Hebrew word indicates to us he's a toddler. I think most of our understanding, we think, is that he's just been born. Or maybe he's still in the womb, the son who's going to die. David's first son by Bathsheba. And, God, and that's when Nathan the prophet rebukes him and says, You are the man. You've stolen this lamb. You need to repay fourfold. We assume that he's an infant. Maybe he's in the womb. And as soon as he's born, he's dying. But the Hebrew word indicates a toddler. So he's two, three, four years old when God finally visits him. And I believe the reason the Lord waited that long was to see if David would be convicted of his own heart for this massive cover-up. Can you imagine trying to go on business as usual for three or four years, knowing everybody still misses Uriah, but you had him killed, knowing Bathsheba's now your wife, and you guys came together through adultery. She still is mourning the loss of her husband. Even though she's the adulteress too, she still loved that guy. You're just acting like everything's okay. I, my personal conviction is Nathan comes because God's given David time to repent on his own. And he just won't. He's acting like nothing's wrong. 
So now when he comes, he says, the boy is as good as dead. And now David begins to fast. Verse, uh, verse 15. And Nathan departed. We're, we're 2 Samuel 12, 15. He departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child, that would be the word toddler, that Uriah's wife bare unto David. It doesn't even call him David's wife or her. It doesn't even call her Bathsheba. The Lord still sees her as Uriah's wife. What an indictment. And it was very sick. The child was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, toddler. And David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day. So here's seven days of fasting to try to change the judgment of God. Now let's back up for a second. David brought this judgment upon himself. I don't have time to go into read it, but just a few verses earlier, when Nathan puts forth the parable and says, Behold, there was a man who had only one lamb. He loved it dearly. Then there was another man who had a bunch of lambs. He went and stole the one man's lamb and killed it and ate it. What should happen to this man? And David said, He should repay fourfold, because that's the Levitical law. If a lamb is killed, you repay fourfold. So David, in his righteousness, knowing the law of God, knowing righteous judgment, says that man who took the other man's lamb when he only had one, he should repay fourfold. And Nathan says, you are the man. So from this point forward, David loses four sons for the Uriah he killed. Out of your words, you'll be justified, and out of your mouth, you'll be condemned. He's going to lose this boy because he invoked the sentence on himself. Let us be careful when we rashly invoke divine judgment, even from Scripture, because the Lord may be dealing with us about us. David, though, knowing the sure mercies of God, is doing his best to bend this thing, which is what intercession does. It bends the judgment of God and deflects it. Does this for seven days. It came to pass, verse 18, on the seventh day that the child died. Seven days he fasted trying to turn this thing. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, when we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice, how will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself to change his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. That's a man of faith. Your child just died, and you're done mourning. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? That thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, you did rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead Therefore, why for should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. I do want to point out this, because I read this story, but I think about Bathsheba. This is her baby too. And David's sinfulness just cost her a toddler. And she knows it. What is one of the greatest aspects of Bathsheba was her ability to forgive David. Have another son with him, Solomon and pick up and serve God still. 
having lost a husband because of David and a toddler because of David. That's, that's a tremendous woman. Uh, I don't know, this American woman today, she'd probably shank him in his sleep with a knife and say he had it coming. And then the prophet would probably say, yeah, not wrong. But that's a tremendous, tremendous woman. She could forgive David for the loss of two precious people in her life. Man, that's a hard thing to swallow. Here we see fasting being used in intercession to turn judgment. And that's why we try to encourage some of you who are believing God for prodigals to come home, or maybe there's something horrific coming down your life. Fast and seek God, like David said, to see if the Lord will be gracious and maybe prevent something. Intercessory prayer is all about changing the will of God. What you're doing with intercessory prayer is you're hearkening on the mercy of God to come against the judgment of God. Both are righteous, but mercy rejoices against judgment. And God is always looking for an intercessor who will stand in the gap and try to assuage the wrath of God. Remember in the end of Ezekiel, he says, I looked to and fro for a man that would stand in the gap, that I would not judge and destroy Israel. But he said, I found nobody. Therefore, I had to judge Israel. Fasting will help prevent judgment. So maybe use that. Let's do one or two more. Is that all right? All right. First Kings 21. First Kings chapter 21. Hopefully I'm encouraging you. How about this play on words? Hopefully I'm whetting your appetite to fast more. <laughs> you should be happy that we Pentecostals understand fasting is more than just food. Uh, our Baptist friends are we're still having discussions with some of them. They're like, you guys don't fast food? Well, yeah, we do, but there's other things to fast. And they're like, please tell me more. I'm so hungry, I almost ate my arm off this morning. It doesn't always have to be food because food may not be your weakness. Fast whatever afflicts your soul. Fast whatever has conditioned you to respond a certain way. Coffee, bubble gum, music. Maybe you come home from work and you have a routine that's just, I don't want to say sinful, but carnal. You come home and you decompress watching something. Maybe your decompression is YouTube videos. Maybe you need to fast YouTube. you got to find something that puts your flesh under that you might seek God. 1 Kings chapter 21, here we have a story of repentance. Fasting used to demonstrate repentance. So we have this, um, let's look, read verse 20. We're reading a couple of passages here, but it's good for you. And Ahab said to Elijah, Elijah has come to judge Ahab for his sinfulness. Ahab says, hast thou found me, O my enemy? Isn't that how every carnal person views the preacher? The preacher becomes the enemy when we hold you accountable for your sin. Have, have you come to me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself, thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. I'm not your enemy, you're God's enemy. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, and will take away thy posterity, and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall. That's a verse where the Lord reminds men who you are. Him that pisseth against the wall. Only hymns can pee and hit the wall. And I've often joked, especially in this age, that these authors are like, Lord, do we really want to use that language? And the Lord says, trust me, there's going to come a day when people aren't going to know who does what with their PP. So, all right, only a he can pee and hit the wall. So that's why it says this expression over and over and over again. 
There's no way a woman can pee and hit the wall. She will pee and hit her knees. So he's very clear. I will cut off the hems. It also tells us he that pisseth against the wall. Children don't do that yet. So it also talks about what age you kill them. If they're able to stand now, because even my four and five-year-old, my five-year-old, he doesn't like to pee standing up yet. He's not comfortable with it. So he still sits down. Third world, they'll still squat to a certain age. Uh, shows you at what age you start killing off the enemy. When they're old enough to stand up and pee and hit the wall, that's when you kill them. There's a lot accomplished in these little expressions. We just get offended because it says pisseth. You laugh at worse than that on the job, so. Oh, this word, that's so rough. It's only rough to your ears. It's King James. Keep reading. And him that is shut up and left in Israel and will make thy house like the house of Jer- uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation where thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And Jezreel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. That's a pretty specific prophecy. Him that dies of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat, and he that dies in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. So this is not a good word from the preacher. I'm not a hard preacher compared to Elijah. I never said dogs are going to eat your wife and birds are going to eat your kids. But this is how sinful Ahab is. But something happens. Verse 25. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. His wife was his undoing. And he did very abominable things, uh, abominable in following idols, according to all things as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words, because these are harsh, harsh words. The message that caused Ahab to repent was not best Friday ever. It was, you are cursed and your children will pay the price. I will cut off your grandchildren when they're old enough to stand to pee. Your wife will be eaten by dogs. It wasn't winking, blinking, best Thursday ever. It was the judgment of God has come to your kingdom. When he heard these words, he tore his clothes. He put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth, which means he changed out his Egyptian cotton sheets and went to sleep on burlap to show the Lord how miserable he was. And he went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Seest thou how Abram, uh, excuse me, Ahab humbleth himself before me? Fasting proved Ahab's sincere humility and repentance. So we can use fasting not just to turn God for healing, not just to overcome mourning and sorrow, not just to find direction and victory in battle. We can use fasting to reveal to the Lord how humble and contrite we are when we've sinned against him. He says, He's humbled himself before me. Because he has, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. The judgment just proclaimed by the prophet was postponed because of fasting. It was going to come. Ahab didn't have to live to see it. Now he saw Jezebel. Ahab dies and Jezebel dies, excuse me. So he doesn't get to see any of the judgment that comes upon his household. But even as wicked as Ahab was, he was able to turn and postpone judgment through fasting. And it showed how humble he was. This is the second time Isaiah invokes a judgment that's postponed almost immediately. He invoked judgment against Hezekiah 
And as soon as he walks away after giving the judgment, Hezekiah repents. God tells Isaiah, go back, tell him I'll give him 15 more years. Here he invokes judgment on Ahab. Ahab repents, goes in sackcloth and ashes, fasts, and God turns the judgment, tells Isaiah, go tell him he won't have to see this judgment in his day. My point to see here is when you need to repent and you need God to see it, fast. Lord, I'm sorry. I am sorry. Forgive me. Sometimes talk is cheap. There are those folks who they're so brokenhearted, they can't even confess their sin. They're so brokenhearted. Then some folks are like, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I'm sorry. You know I'm sorry. Forgive me, Lord. And they become so flippant with the grace of God, they don't even know what they're calling upon. Maybe if that's you, you take that humility to the next level and you show the Lord the contrition and the penitence through fasting. It doesn't tell us how long you fasted for. Maybe a day, maybe three days. And don't fast something easy. Fast something that afflicts you, if you mean business. Last one, Nehemiah. Uh, Yeah, we'll just let this be the last one. There's plenty more to look at. I like this one a lot because this one is a postponed answer that might discourage us. But if we could see how it works, maybe it will encourage us. Nehemiah chapter 1, right there before Psalms, Job and Psalms, kind of the end of the historical books. Last one. Hopefully you're being encouraged. We're just doing a walk through the Old Testament, looking at stories about fasting, extracting truths we can principalize for our lives today. Hopefully it's giving you some more weapons of your warfare. They can't be carnal. Fasting can't be carnal because you're doing without it. But it is mighty through God. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is currently in Shushan, Persia, in the palace. And he hears word come back from Jerusalem. This is at the end of the captivity. And Zerubbabel, who was the other guy? I think uh, there's another guy before Zerubbabel whose name escapes me. It's not Belshazzar. They've gone and they've begun to rebuild Israel, begin to rebuild Jerusalem and the wall and the temple. And here comes word back to Shushan that the wall is in ruin. What was built by Zerubbabel has been overthrown and the city's going vacant again. They estimate that in this season, Jerusalem had less than 20,000 people living there and most of them were sickly and they were uh, what we would call, um, I don't want to say inbreds, they, they were Samaritans. They weren't pure stock that the prophecy had come to pass that nobody was even living in Jerusalem. It's a desolate. And this breaks Nehemiah's heart because he wants to do something. So verse 4 says, It came to pass when I heard these words, the affliction, the wall broken down, gates burned, etc., that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed. So there's a couple things there. Mourning, fasting, praying before the God of heaven. And and I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and let thy eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night. Wasn't just a cheap confession. This was on his heart constantly. For the children of Israel, thy servants, And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou 
commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servants Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to thy prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants We desire, who desire to fear your name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man talking about the king, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now that's a long prayer. He's interceding. He's confessing. But I want you to see what he's asking for. It's kind of lost in the King James. Modern translations pick it up. Give me favor with the king. That's what he's praying and fasting for. Give me favor with the king. This prayer comes in the Hebrew month of Chislu, which is kind of into the fall, first of the winter. This is when he begins to pray for favor. Chapter 2, verse 1. It came to pass in the month Nisan, not the car. It's another Jewish month. This is the spring. He begins praying November, December. The answer comes five months later. And out of nowhere. So the discouragement is you pray and fast and nothing seems to happen. The encouraging thing is you prayed and fasted and something has to happen. He prayed and fasted in the fall for favor with the king that something could be done. It came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Therefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart, and I was very sore afraid. And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, What do you want me to do? An answer six months, five, six months in the coming. But he prayed and fasted for favor, and though it tarried, it did not tarry. And here, because of praying and fasting for favor, the king gives him a blank check. What can I do? And he becomes the author of Nehemiah and accomplishes everything Nehemiah accomplishes, all because he had a burden for his people and fasted for favor to do something. I don't think he had any idea he would be the one building the wall, threatening Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the Arabians. He just said, something needs to be done. Please give me favor with the king so we can discuss this. But it was all open because of prayer and fasting. Maybe you need favor. Fasting is something that can accomplish favor for you. All right, I know you're all hungry. You're looking at me all quiet. Hopefully my preaching was louder than your stomach licking ribs. And you're hearing some of these truths here. Because there's about five or six things we covered that fasting can accomplish for you. This is why it's a weapon of our warfare and we have to have it always ready. Use wisdom I don't believe anybody should fast for 40 days because you're not Elijah eating angel food. You're not Moses on the mountain in the glory, and you're not Jesus, the Son of God. Those are our only four, three 40-day fasters. We don't have the presence of God like any of those guys. 
Amen. So what we need to do is make sure we're realistic. Afflict your soul and cry out to God. 